This is Chris Talk Movies. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Chris Ferry, and this is my co-host. I am Chris Huddleston. And today, we're going to have a super fun time talking about the 1985, I believe? 85. 19... 1985 uh, thriller, chiller, Fright Night. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. Something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Nightmare. Not your mom. They did kill a girl over there. Not your girlfriend. Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back? Not even the police. Look, I know it's crazy. I know that, but look, Lieutenant! It knows that you know. You'll do anything to protect yourself. But it will do anything to protect its secret. <laughs> This could be the night of your life. Okay, great old school trailer. Chris, do you have a synopsis for us? I do. So, as you said, Fright Night uh, came out in 1985. It was written and directed by Tom Holland. Uh, This was the first, first film that he directed. Um, and it stars Chris Randon, Williams, Ra- William Ragsdale, Amanda Bierce, Roddy McDowell, and Stephen Jeffries. And it is a tale of uh, Charlie Brewster. He's a high school kid who has a kind of a, an active imagination and is into watching old school horror movies. And he has a neighbor or a couple of neighbors move in next door and he is convinced that uh the neighbor whose name is jerry dandridge is a vampire no one believes him you know all of his friends and family think he's crazy uh ultimately he approaches this horror host named peter vincent played by roddy mcdowell to help him out peter vincent doesn't believe him uh his girlfriend uh charlie's girlfriend amy and his buddy ed evil ed uh pay peter vincent to go to uh the neighbor's house and do a vampire test to prove that he's not a vampire and when they get there peter vincent realizes that he has no reflection um and so then he is convinced and ultimately his friends become convinced as well and kind of the rest of the movie is them them battling this neighbor vampire. Right. So this was a movie that I've seen several times over the years. I don't know how many exactly, but this was a first time watch for you, right? First time. Had not seen it. 
Um, and I liked it. I Good. enjoyed it. It's a lot of fun. It got, you know, uh, took me a little while it to for it to kind of crank up. Mm-hmm. Because just from the trailer, you know what's going to happen. We know that Charlie is not crazy. Um I mean, heck, from the movie poster, you know it. The, the whole pitch of the film is like, what if what if everyone thought you were crazy because you knew there was a vampire next door and they didn't believe you? So, right. So for the whole first half of the movie, like we, it's just frustrating because we know he's right. <laughs> and there's a couple of like weird near misses where, you know, he comes in contact with the vampire and we think that the vampire is just going to kill him. And then, but it's like, Oh, here comes mom. And for whatever reason, the vampire doesn't want to be discovered, I that guess. That really made me laugh, you know, watching it again. Uh, <laughs> it's just this sort of time. like, I'll see you later, kid. And you're like, we just kill them all. I was just, you know, what yeah. do you care? <laughs> yeah. But so there's a number of those like that feel like, uh, you know, junior high or high school movie logic where it's like, oh, if this cop wasn't standing here, you'd be getting, <laughs> you just kind of like, Okay. I guess you, you could. I guess you it. could. I guess you could, you know, kind of spin it as he's trying to to draw as little attention as possible. But he's killing prostitutes, and you know, he's right. he has no uh, concern really about killing this teenager. He just doesn't want to kill his mom for whatever reason, you know. Right. Yeah. It, it's um. Yeah. Uh, there's a bit of that. Um. But there's a lot of really great stuff in the movie, and I think about halfway through. Um, it really picks up. Um, and I particularly enjoyed, okay, so there's a couple of different categories I want to talk about. And I guess I'll start with, um, let me see if I can spell them all out. So one is hard, is the hardest to quantify, which is like a kind of a dialogue and directing and acting style that even though it was 85, it felt like older Hollywood somehow, like, Mm -hmm. so I'll come back to that, that I thought was a little, it was a little distracting. Um, And then I want to talk about sort of sexual themes, which I thought I found really one of my, I mean, it sounds weird to say, it was one of my favorite parts of the film because it felt really dangerous to have the vampire who is a fully grown adult, you know, male, um, sort of seducing Charlie's, that's his name, right? Charlie? Yes. Charlie. Uh, girlfriend. And they're, maybe they're seniors, but they're, you know, she reads young. Like it feels really racy, like really. Yeah, they never, they never say what, there's very, very little just very brief uh, stuff with them at school, but they never, you never get any indication as far as what age they are. But they're definitely in high school. Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely in high school, but they could be 16 or they could be 18. You don't really know. We, we know that they're sort of right at the, the, the sexual theme. We can, I want to just come back to it for a second. Cause the third thing I want to talk about is the, um, the practical effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, which are really fun. But as long as we're talking about the sexual themes thing, let's just start on there because we we start the movie starts with him making out with his girlfriend in their bedroom, and um, 
the imp the strong implication is that they're both virgins because she's reluctant to kind of go all the way and she's nervous and so is he. Mm-hmm. He's very into her. So, I mean, they could be 18 at that age, but that's why it even makes me feel like it skews younger. Like they might be 16 or 17. Right. And when the vampire full on starts messing with them, like when they all kind of decide to go after him to destroy him, um, he gets between Charlie and the girlfriend in the nightclub and uses his like vampire hypnotic powers on her. And they're out on the dance floor and they do a, I mean, it's all PG, but it's a very sexually charged dance on the dance floor together. Mm-hmm. And then he gets her back to his house where she's sort of on a bearskin rug in this sort of Marilyn Monroe dress and he bites her on the neck. But, you know, as it is with vampires, it's extremely eroticized. Yeah. And I just kept thinking, like, this is crazy. This is she's like 16 or something like that. So I, I love that it had that sense of danger to it. Um, and she changes as well from this kind of yeah. know, teen girl with this short hair to where her hair becomes longer. And she's and there were there were a couple of scenes where I was like, is this the same actor? Did they you know what I mean? Did they you because she looks so much different. Her hair's longer, you know, and she has contacts in it and everything. And a couple of scenes I was like, is that did they use somebody else? You know what I mean? But and I I don't think it was. Then then she would speak and be like, okay, it's 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 the same actor, but they they def, definitely, you know, uh, uh, sexualized her. You know, you know, kind of changed her from kind of you know just this teenage girl to now she looks like a woman and she has this slinky dress on, you know, and and all of that. But but yeah, there's that scene where he bites her, and you know they play this. It's very um, I would say the most dated aspect of this is probably the music, um, you know, the fashion a little bit too, but, but yeah, he bites her and, you know, she, she you don't see her nude body or anything, but her, her, her back is uncovered and you just see the blood, you know, like two or three trickles of blood run down her back. It's really neat the way it's shot, but it's like you said, it's, it's very sexual. Well, it, it a lot of these films from the 80s that we're revisiting or this is right in line with that where you know the the sort of ratings code said was pretty uh, literal like you can only show this or so much of that before it tips over into an R rating mm-hmm. you can only have so many curses and they all had different weight you know so you know, this doesn't cross a line visually on screen. You don't see bared breasts, for example. You don't see, you know what I mean? There is one, there is once where, uh, and this was an R, but there, there's one where, um, he's oh, one looking, of the victims. Yeah, yeah. He's looking, Charlie is, um, Charlie is spying on the guy all the time and he has binoculars and he's looking through the window and, uh, right. He, Jerry Dandridge has, you know, this girl in there and he takes her top off. And I think that was kind of like the, right. Well, it's the eighties. We got to get, you know, we got to get boobs in there. I don't know if voyeurism was a thing in the eighties, but it was a thing in eighties movies. Like it was, it was a, that's a very common trope of like, somebody is looking through a window and watching someone else undress or watching two other people be intimate. I remember that, that, that came up so much in the eighties and 
it made me wonder, like, was voyeurism just more of a thing or, or why? Why was that the constant repeat? That's a, that's an interesting uh, thought. There's probably somebody has analyzed that or something, you know, I mean, there's probably like a, somebody has written a paper or something about voyeurism in 80s films or something. But yeah. And then the other thought that I thought was interesting, and maybe I'm curious to hear if this resonated with you. So the vampire has a friend mm-hmm. that lives with him. That is, he is not a vampire, I don't think, uh, but he's some sort of, he's he is supernatural because there's, he takes bullets to the chest and he takes a lot of abuse and kind he's of like gets, his, his Renfield or, or something like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But he's something more than just a hypnotized human. He, you know, he, he defies, he's not exactly a zombie, but he certainly gets shot multiple times right in the chest and then sort of gets back up and keeps coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's never really defined what their relationship is, but I read it as that it's a very um, bisexual, like the vampire is kind of pansexual. The vampire mm-hmm. is kind of, you know, and, and the, something about his interactions and the kind of knowing looks they exchange had an intimacy that made me think that this vampire kind of goes both ways and it doesn't doesn't get too hung up on that. Um did you did you get that vibe at all, or am I bringing all of that to the I screen? wasn't honestly. I wasn't. I've never picked up on it too much watching the movie, but I was reading. I was reading some stuff about it today, and they said that that uh, I've read some quotes from Chris Harandon, who plays the vampire, and he said he only took it as just again, it's he was his Renfield or whatever. You know, he was his his servant or his helper or whatever. But, but he said that the director definitely had intended it to be like, there was some, uh, you know, there was, he, he specifically said that it was supposed to be homoerotic, that there was the definitely supposed to be the inclination was that, you know, they had an an actual relationship. And as you said, he kind of, he was into women. He was into him. Yeah. There's nothing on screen explicitly you know you never see them holding hands even or making out or anything it's just something in the way that they sort of you know charlie would come in and the two of them would look at each other and there was just something knowing in that that doesn't surprise me that the director was going for that because i saw it on the screen and i thought it made Certainly in 85, I thought it made it a slightly more interesting film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie would have been, you know, if Charlie is your typical 1985, you know, male teenager, um, that would have probably made me feel uncomfortable if I, you know, I wouldn't have even come up on my radar when I was that age. I What did I know about it? But sure, I just felt like that was deliberate and I wondered if I was imagining it. Uh, like I say, on the uh, my understanding was on the director's part, it definitely was. But but Chris Sarandon said he didn't really feel. And they said that the director, um, the director came from a a theater background, and he said, uh-huh. and you can tell me if this is a common thing in theater. But he said they actually they had two weeks to rehearse, and before they actually filmed the movie they did an entire run through of the script where they did it just like a play. 
and he uh, told the actors to write their own backstories for their characters. And some of that, they a little bit here and there, I guess they kind of added into the, the movie, you know, things that weren't actually in the script that there you were their own views of, of, um, you know, the makeup of their characters. Yeah. Which, and like I say, Chris Sarandon, you know, he, he didn't feel there was any kind of a, a gay aspect with, with him and the, uh, and the other guy, but what, what I did feel like there was definitely, um, some of that going on. So Ed, the evil Ed, so Charlie's friend is this just kind of strange, you know, weirdo, uh, kid. And they don't really delve into it too much that, you know, he's bullied or anything like that, but he's just a strange kid. Well, the vampire, turns him at one point like he they get separated and and the vampire shows up uh as ed is like going through this alleyway to get back to his house and the um jerry the vampire he stops ed and he tells him that he can take him away from all the pain and you know the uh suffering that he's going through Another, another type of seduction, really. Exactly. Yeah. And, and Ed reaches out his hand, you know, and he takes his hand and then, you know, the the implication is that he bites him. And I felt like that was much more of a, you know, if you want to use the term, uh, homoerotic kind of scene than anything was between Jerry and the guy that lives with him. What did you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I guess I didn't feel like there was... Not that it's a problem, but I didn't feel like there was anything in the film that was, to use the term, that was homoerotic. The only eroticism we see in the film is really between the vampire and the girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know whether that was just to keep things clearer or to kind of keep the story moving forward or just because audiences might have you know, didn't, they didn't feel that audience were quite ready for actual homoeroticism on film. Uh, I, I don't know, but yeah, I do think that this theme of seduction, like what is the vampire's action? The vampire seduces and then he feeds, right? Mm-hmm. But he, he seduces, I mean, a prostitute, I guess I'm, you're not really seducing somebody, but he entices them. You know what I mean? It's it's about the seduction as much as anything else. And then he drinks their blood. And right. I guess with the case of the prostitutes, he simply kills them. But with um, evil and the girlfriend, I mean, he chooses to turn certain people for Machiavellian reasons. Yeah, so he can use them. And I've always um, felt that scene with, uh, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just, I've always, I've always thought that scene with evil, uh, Ed is that scene is handled really well where he turns him. It's, it's really kind of touching, you know, because he cries and he's, you know, it's basically like, it's kind of this powerless kid. And now it's like, okay, you're, you know, you're going to have power now and, and there won't be any pain anymore. And, I've I've always thought that ever since even when I saw it the first time as a kid and even now as an adult I think it it holds up well. I mean it's just it's a very brief scene but I I I've just always thought it's kind of touching, you know. I mean it's it's creepy in yeah. a way because he's turning him into a monster but um 
I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I think to me, what what I like, this had a lot, played around with a lot of what I like about vampires and vampire movies. It's not, for me, the fear of being bitten, but it's the exploration of like, so what is scary about a vampire, right? Is a vampire fundamentally seductive? Is a vampire fundamentally voracious? Uh, is a vampire fundamentally sadistic? You know, what? What it's like when people portray vampires, directors and writers, it's like, what is their core? I mean, vampires are all of these things, but but what is their core? It's like with zombies. You know, are they fast zombies? Are they slow zombies? Are they smart zombies? Are they, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you have some carte blanche to play with the, um, the, the, the archetype. And I think it's more interesting when, like, hunger is a common one. That, that the fundamental vampire drive is hunger. And here, it felt like the fundamental drive of this vampire was more about control. Mm-hmm. It was self-preservation because he didn't want to be discovered. And I liked also that they they gave him classic vampire vulnerabilities, right? So if you were a, a, a true believer and you held up a cross, that had real power against this vampire. Right. You know? And I think frequently they're kind of indomitable. <laughs> like they're faster than you. They're smarter than you. They can, you know, it's like you, what chance do you really have? Yeah. But, but this one... I guess we didn't actually see him respond to garlic, but he was afraid of holy water. He recoiled when people held up a cross. You know, he was vulnerable to daylight, um, like all of the classic things. Right. And I th- I thought that gave them, you think like, well, they don't have much of a chance, but, you know, there are things they can do to pr- at least protect themselves. Mm-hmm. And that made him more interesting movie. Like you don't, contemporary vampires don't seem to have many vulnerabilities. And I like that this one did. Yeah. Yeah. They use the, the, definitely the old school, uh, kind of, you know, they didn't really try to reinvent the wheel as far as, you know, it was a, it was an old school vampire story in a contemporary for the time setting. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that felt interesting in the eighties. Like they'd, he'd be like, what are you going to do, Charlie? You know, and as he's advancing on him, like playing with his food, Charlie whips out this wooden cross and the vampire responds in this wonderful, like old school. He's like, ah! you know, yeah. and recoils and it's like, oh yeah, that's so much fun. Like, yeah. That's yeah. so great that the vampire is like, like this causes the vampire physical pain beholding this cross. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. Oh yeah. It's great. Um, And you know, the thing with you were talking about uh, zombies, um, which you kind of took the, the words right out of my mouth. I think, you know, v- vampire stories are interesting because a zombies, nobody wants to be a zombie, right? You know, that's whereas a vampire, there's always this double sided thing of it's like, well, you're scared of them, but it's also they're seductive because it's, you know, the the vampire's trying to kill some people, but he's trying to sell some other people on the idea of, Hey, you can be immortal and you can be powerful, you know? And, and that's, and who doesn't think, Oh, it would be really great to live forever. But you know, it's this idea of obviously nobody can. So 
I've always thought that's interesting with vampire stories that, you know, the, the vampire is not, um, you know, this guy, he's this handsome guy and it's not until, um, he's shown the cross or it's something happens that, you know, he gets hurt or something like that, that you kind of see his true form, but he's very seductive to, especially to Amy, the girlfriend, you know, is immediately attracted to him the first time Mm -hmm. that she sees him. So again, it's not like some other creature that you're going to instantly be terrified of, you know? And it's, it's a stacked deck. I mean, he's a good looking guy and we see that she, this teenage girl does think like, vavoom, who is that? Yeah. But then when he turns his powers on her, it's clear that it's not simply like he is manipulating her. Right. You know, he's, he's, he's putting her in sort of a trance that she kind of comes in and out of. But, you know, the minute he sort of makes eye contact with her again, there's no, it's not like she's fighting it per se, like she's putty in his hands. And I think that makes him, I I like the way they establish his powers and the way they establish his weaknesses. Because Mm -hmm. in certain contexts, he seems overwhelmingly powerful, but he's not Superman, right? I mean, he's strong and he's fast and he can turn into mist and all these crazy comic booky things that make him like really a daunting opponent, but he is not invulnerable. Charlie stabs him through the hand with a pencil and really (laughs) really hurts him, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're so, right. So, um, so just before we get to the practical effects, which I think are kind of a fun third thing to talk about, I want to talk about a little bit the beginning and, like, I I thought she was terrific. I mean, I think, um, the vampire was terrific. Um, I thought, um, I see. The guy that plays Evil Ed is so weird. Mm-hmm. It's almost you, like on all '80s stories, you had to have or '80s movies. Geek. You had to have a weird sidekick, you know, that's awkward and yeah. And his performance didn't really even fit into any of those boxes. I mean, it, it, he was his performance was so odd. I found him mostly annoying. Like, I just Mm-mm. found him really irritating. But then there were those moments, like, when the just before the when the vampire had him cornered in that alley, <laughs> the kind of, he, he's running down an alley. I'm like, where are they? <laughs> he's in this labyrinth of, like, blind alleys until he runs down an alley that terminates in a brick wall. I'm like, who built this yeah. alley? Why is this here, <laughs> right? This, this doesn't yeah. exist in the real world. But uh, but his performance in that moment really is genuinely touching, like his fear, mm-hmm. and but also th- you see the the vampire seduction of him in that moment would not have worked if you didn't really read the pain in his eyes, the temptation of nobody's going to hurt you anymore. I'm going to make you powerful. I'm going to make yeah. you. Yeah, we got to cross this little line of death, you know. I'm going to bite you and that's going to hurt and then you're going to die, but you're going to be reborn as something, you know, a butterfly so much better, you know, that no one's going to be able to stop you. And and the fear mixed with the temptation of that 
he doesn't have lines you know it's really plays out on his face and you're like that's acting like that kind of makes him his performance in the movie for me because once he's a monster all of that kind of gibbering cackling stuff is really scary Mm -hmm. (laughs) they give him they give him these bonkers prosthetic teeth and you know and they really make him look like um a monster and he has this sort of very falsetto sort of screeching, cackling voice and laugh. And all of that works when he was a monster. When he's a high school student, I'm like, <laughs> please be quiet. <laughs> You're yeah. So irritating. Um, so so that kind of leads me into. Oh, well, I was just going to say I, I never really connected with Charlie, you know, the protagonist himself that you think yeah, the audience has to like the protagonist and has to is I never really liked Charlie all that much. I mean, he didn't drive me insane, but I didn't really care what happened to Charlie. How did you feel about it? Yeah, and he kind of has uh one he, he kind of has one note which is just being sort of hysterical all the time. You know, cuz he's just running around trying to convince everybody that this guy's a vampire, you know, and nobody's listening to him and he just seems kind of ridiculous. And he's also, you know, he, you know, he's kind of just trying to pressure Amy into having sex with him, you know, and he seems, I don't know. I mean, and that, not that that's not a common teenage boy kind of a thing, but, um, well, but if you don't care, if you don't, if you're not, standing in the in the protagonist's shoes right if you're not rooting for the protagonist right it just seems kind of you know you're like oh come on amy come on you know you're just like leave her alone man she said no you know but if it's Mm -hmm. if you feel like it's you then that kind of you know post me to all of these movies feel they all seem kind of strange just like she said no, she's not ready for it, <laughs> you know, but yeah. in the 80s, that was just, you know, in these 80 movies, that was just, you go back and watch them now and you're like, oh my God, jeez. For sure, um, for sure. I, I think I, when I played, a, really, go ahead. I was going to say, I played a little game with myself and I'm like, I can't put my finger in like a bumper sticker sentence on why... <coughs> Charlie wasn't working for me. And I, I thought of like, well, who who could I have cast in this? And I thought, I don't know, Emilio Estevez or... You know or, what? It's um, funny that you said that because another thing that I was reading about today, Charlie Sheen actually uh, auditioned for this and, and didn't get it. I don't think... I think Charlie he did the Sheen... Wraith, he did the Wraith instead. He did the Wraith instead, yeah. I think Charlie Sheen would have been too cool. You know, I think... Not that Charlie Sheen isn't a good enough actor that he could have done it, but... I think you want somebody a little bit kind of nerdy in there. And I, I think he would. Well, really I thought Tom Cruise, you know, yeah. young Tom Cruise, like I think ris- risky business Tom Cruise, where, he, you know, he was a kid. He was a kid playing it cool. Mm-hmm. But that might have eclipsed some of the other performances. I mean, you didn't want somebody with too much dazzle. But you wanted somebody I felt I felt a little more empathetic on screen. And again, I'm not trying to harsh on this actor. Right. I just I felt like the movie was fun and it worked for a lot of reasons and that it felt like an ensemble piece. 
I don't, I mean, Roddy McDowell, what are you going to say bad about Roddy McDowell? That's what I was going to say like... about halfway through the movie. He hook he, when he hooks up with Roddy McDowell, that's when it really takes off. Cause he's just so, he's just so great in the movie. You know, he, Roddy McDowell is great full stop. I think Roddy McDowell is doing a lot of, I didn't feel a lot of what Roddy McDowell was doing, but he, Mm -hmm. he told the story. And what I mean by that is, you know, he plays a coward who is this sort of vain, you know, vain actor, you know, B minus C actor who found himself doing a bunch of like cheap vampire movies and then narrating a kind of, um, you know, Lloyd Kaufman uh, late night creature feature show called Fright Night. And I like that it ties it all together. <laughs> um, and he gets roped into this because underneath all of his cowardice, he um, has a heart and he wants to, He you know, he aspires I think to be the hero way deep down to be the thing he's played in movies. Yeah. But, and all of that is clear in his performance, you know, like when he's too afraid to go in the house, but then he thinks, Oh, these kids are going to die. If I don't, you know, I need to do the right thing. And he, he mans up and he goes in, you, he tells the story of that on his face. I just didn't feel it. Mm Mm-hmm. And what what do you think? Did you I mean, did you see did you watch Roddy McDowell's performance and and you know what I mean by feel it? Like when sure. you watch Tom Hanks, like you feel it. <laughs> you feel the agony of him like being like, I want to get home to my wife, but I also need to do my duty, even though it might kill me. And he decides to do his duty, and guess what? It kills him. But but you feel it when you watch Tom Hanks do it. And I didn't feel it with Roddy McDowell. I I think there's a couple of scenes there where there's one where he finally, um, Charlie goes to his apartment to can, you know, to try to convince him to, to help them. And he's packing up all of his things to leave. And he's very torn about, you know, he just says, I'm, I'm sorry. I just can't, I can't help you. You know? And I felt like he says, says, sorry, Charlie. Sorry. sorry, Charlie." Charlie. Yeah. But I felt like that, that resonated for me. I mean, one thing that I thought was interesting is, uh, you know, so I was thinking as I was watching it, I thought, I wonder if, um, you know, was this, was this just kind of a paycheck for, uh, Roddy McDowell and actually in, in the, the, the little bit of reading that I did about it, the, the movie was specifically written for Vincent Price. Mm. Um, and the name Peter Vincent comes from Peter Cushing and Vincent Price. Um, and so the, you know, the, the, the writer and the director had Vincent Price always in mind when he wrote this and, uh, they approached him and he, you know, it was kind of late in his, his career and, he was basically kind of t- tired of doing horror movies and, you know, being typecast as that. So he turned it down and one of the producers knew Roddy McDowell and said to the director, Hey, you know, what about Roddy McDowell? And he said, yeah, I think that would be great. And they, according to what I read, uh, Roddy McDowell was, he was really into it. So it wasn't like he just, it was just a paycheck thing. He very much liked the character. There's actually a sequel to this. That's kind of hard to find. And Roddy McDowell is, is in that. And then uh, they had planned to do a uh, third movie 
and the production uh, people were the uh, remember the Menendez brothers that killed their parents, you yeah. know, in like the nineties. Well, it was uh, their dad was uh, owned the production company, and it was like it was in the pipeline to do a third one, and then after he died, you know, things changed hands and it didn't happen. But they said that, that, uh, Roddy McDowell was, had hoped to do a third. So he was very into the character. It wasn't like he was just phoning it in, you know, or, or whatever, but I didn't think he was phoning it in. Mm -hmm. I thought it was sort of, um, I guess I thought it was sort of a directorial failing of, and I was going to say it could be what's on the page as well, you know? Yeah, but it's more like because it's it walks the line between comedy and thriller and horror. And it's not it's fun horror. It's like there's some genuinely yes. like, oh, look at that scary, you know, but it's but it's a popcorn movie. It's not um, a movie like The Witch or a movie. You know, there are there are horror movies that try to really get under your skin. Like I'm going to give you nightmares for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And 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 there are those movies, and then there are other movies. that's like art horror movies, fun. We got a really good one. You know, grab a dr- soda and a popcorn to bring your date because this is going to be awesome. And this is one of those fun horror movies uh, where the right. scares can be great, but it's fun. And so there's a lot of comedy in those kind of movies. Um, and I felt like it was just a directorial thing of Roddy McDowell, maybe not nailing all of the like what's a comic bit and what's a pathos bit and what's a you know what i mean sure it can be there can be a lot of tight turns beat to beat um and i think it was more that because i'm certainly not going to say roddy mcdowell doesn't have the chops uh because that would be absurd uh i you know funny it's funny that you say vincent price i thought christopher lee might have been a really yeah, interesting. He would, obviously, yeah, he would be a, he would be you a good know, because he has sure. the vanity and but also the gravitas. Like when he was really, I think what Roddy McDowell doesn't really have to me is the gravitas of a vampire hunter, right? But if you had like a Christopher Lee, who like when he rises to his full height and owns the like begone spawn of darkness or whatever, you mm-hmm. you would have bought that. You'd be like, oh, that's why we brought this guy along, right? Yeah, Roddy McDowell is in no way any kind of a, a uh, an intimidating guy or anything He's like that. He's a caring, paternal, mm-hmm. you know, empathetic, certainly can do comedy. Um, and I, I bought the vein. I bought the vein. But when I think of like vein, but like rises to the power of Vampire Hunter, I thought someone like Christopher Lee. Sure. Because he's very self-conscious, but he also does that. I mean, look at him in Saruman. Like he, you know, he, he's just—he's Christopher Lee. He's amazing, and he would have been younger then, but he still would have been, you know, a gentleman of a certain age. Another thing that I read that goes along kind of with what you're saying is, so it was, you know, first time director. Um, they said they only did two or three takes on each scene, and. Mm-hmm. They first said, time director, yeah, yeah, and they said that everyone was he, he's Roddy McDowell, and you know other, the, you know the other people were younger than him, um, and they said he was this wonderful guy. They all loved him, and they said he went around with a with a video camera and like just did like his own home movies, you know, while they were on the set and stuff. But that but they said everybody was in awe of him, 
Um, so I'm sure the director was probably in awe of him as well. So you probably just said, here's a couple of takes. That was great, Roddy. Let's yeah. go on to the next thing. You and know. that's fun. That's a lot of fun, but that's not necessarily good for the movie. Right. Yeah. But I'm glad everybody had a great time. And again, I'm, I'm picking nits. I had a lot of fun. This is a fun movie. There's a reason why you see it come up in your queue. It's a it's a ton of fun. Um, it's a ton of fun. And I think that once you get to the back nine, <laughs> like once you get to the second half, and they 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 kind of hitch up their pants and they like I don't have a choice, and they all go into the vampire's mansion for the final showdown. Mm-hmm. It gets really fun. Uh, because they really start to unleash these 80s practical effects. They used a lot of the kind of melting technology, right? Like there's a wax hand that sort of reversed the camera where the hand sort of comes back together from from goo. Or They just had a ton of fun. The vampires take all different states. Like there's contact lenses, there's sort of different stages of oh i so evil turns into a wolf at one point and he gets roddy mcdowell skewers him through the heart and then there's this long sequence where he sort of turns back from he's he's dying and he turns back from wolf to boy and there's got to be six stages of it Mm -hmm. right where each stage has a different prosthetic and it's sort of mewling and screaming and whimpering and it goes on and on (laughs) that was one part that i uh had totally forgotten about i don't know why but that's the one it's all fun but that was a genuinely kind of disturbing scene where he's dying you know he's like you said he's kind of this half wolf half boy and and that was and you roddy mcdowell's just sort of watching him die and there's not anything that he can do, and he just kind of looks concerned. And but, pitying. You know, He's pitying, pitying him. him. Yeah. But, that, but so the that's, prosthetics are also pretty gross. Like, the prosthetics yeah, are. are also, they're not designed to be like, this is the scary hybrid. It's like, it's the most um, Cronenberg, like, kind of wretched, mm-hmm. bulging, one bulbous eye. It's like, they're really designed to be kind of gross, things and it's the performance of his sort of piteous screams that make it it's not funny uh you know like it but it goes on and on and i just i marveled at that i'm like i guess you spent the money on these things but again i come back to first time director i'm just like you know how much of this do you put on the scale in terms of the whole thing, because I feel like we have stopped the momentum of the story and now we're spending time languishing here. And it's I remember I was eating a late night snack and I had to kind of put my bowl down. I'm like, yeah, oh, God. Yeah, it's pretty gross. Uh, that, that's the I'm my only real criticism I've had. I would have of the movie. It's about an hour and 45 minutes. I think it could probably be trimmed down to an hour and a half and just move sure. a little bit. You know, it's never, it's not like it's a real slow burn, but there's just some little, you know, you could cut a minute or two here and there and I think get it down to an an hour 30 and it it would, it would run a lot more smoothly. And it doesn't all have to be action sequences either. I mean, I, again, I think the, the stuff between the vampire and Amy, Amy is the girlfriend's name. Yes. 
is dynamite, and that's just great acting. You know, that's just great acting. Like they, they, they when when there's chemistry on scene on screen between this character and the other character, keep it. You know, you don't have to cut that. That's that's interesting, yeah. but there is some. Some of the stuff goes on a little longer than it needs to. I think you're right. I think 15 minutes, and that doesn't sound like a lot, but in a film, you that's that's significant. This would be a better movie at an hour and a half than it is in an hour 45. Yeah. That's not a deal breaker. No, no. Again, it's not like it's a slow movie. You know, it's always moving. Now, no. Amy, did you, recog- did you recognize Amy? No, but she looked really familiar to me. Did so, you ever so- watch Married with Children? Yes. She was the neighbor. You know, the neighbor couple? Oh, yeah. She was, she was the neighbor uh, from Married with Children. Oh, yes. Well, you know, they, it's... they did the sequel and they they have a... So the sequel, the sequel is pretty good, too. Not not as good as this, but it but it's still pretty fun. Um, And he goes... So it it's... Things are kind of reversed. He goes to college and he's gone through therapy and... And he now is convinced through therapy that none of the stuff ever happened, that the guy was never a vampire. And and so it again, he encounters more vampires. And and I believe it's been a while since I've seen it. But Peter Vincent is now the one that it's like, yeah, there's vampires here, Charlie. That's the company of Charlie. No, it, it's yeah. real. It all and he's happened. like, no, no, that, you know, that never happened. You know, I I that was all in my mind, you know, but uh so she is not, they have a new girlfriend because um, she, they tried to get her, but she was doing married with children and mm. she couldn't get out of it, you know, for the film. So, yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I had, an, I had anticipated that wanting to talk more about the sort of dated acting style that I felt like I can't put my finger on it. I need to play clips of it, but. Something in the way that he delivers his lines is like, oh, come on, Amy, can't you see what I'm, you know, it just felt like an older Hollywood, like he had a acting coach at the time. It was 65 and was like, no, here's how you got to do it, kid. You know, it felt in an 80s movie. It just felt stale somehow. Like that's not how people are approaching acting at the time when this film was, does that, you know, does that sure, make sure. sense or am I yeah. just an actor being like, no, no, I, I, I understand what you're saying. And I think, you know, you have, it seems like, especially with genre movies, you have, um, you know, the current directors, they're all referencing whatever they love, whatever they grew up with, you know? So this movie is obviously a, it's a little bit of a spoof, but it's not making fun. And it's, it's a love letter to the old horror movies. Cause you've got a little bit of the foggy, you know, the mansion and all that kind of a thing, you know? So, sure. so I'm, sh- I'm sure that Tom Holland was, you know, you brought up, uh, Christopher Lee. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that Tom Holland was into the old hammer horror films and things like that. So, you know, he's referencing a lot of that. So it's, there might've been some influence as far as what the acting was like, you know, in the sixties or the fifties or whatever. Whereas, you know, now you have all these directors that they all grew up in the eighties and maybe the nineties, you know, so they're referencing everything that happened, you know, that happened back then. So I'm sure it probably, you know, and maybe it wasn't even intentional. Maybe it was just subconscious that, uh, you know, maybe he a little bit played more as a, 
fifties or sixties character in an eighties film. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to talk about without specific examples. It just, the first half of the movie, I was waiting for there to be some fireworks. And so I was paying attention to stuff like that. And I don't know, once we got into the second half and there's a whole, like it's a circus of practical effects. So the, the Renfield character, um, he sort of, he sort of melts and it's like, there's all this green slime coming out of his pant leg and then it's right. And he sort of devolves into a skeleton and then it kind of explodes into dry bones and skull flies across. the. Yeah, you're just kind of like, what? Oh, wow. That was a sequence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and when they get the vampire, like when the vampire gets sort of enraged and or terrified, he, his eyes sort of bulge out and he's got the contacts and, we see a bunch of different kinds of vampire teeth from like stiletto canines to the, the, you know, when she first turned, when the girlfriend first turns, she's the sort of sexy vampire with a lot of eye makeup and just has these wicked canines. But then at, when she gets a little rabbit, her eyes kind of bug out and she's got these crazier contacts and they morph her whole face into this kind of maw of a bunch of jagged teeth. They become more, much more animalistic, you know, as they. Yeah. Yeah. And we see we it's almost a werewolf movie, you know, when he reverts back from wolf. But it's like a vampire can become a wolf. He can become a bat. He can become mist. He can. (laughs) Yeah. We just get this kind of salad of all of that stuff throughout. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to what happens when or why. But it's all fun. It's all fun. And the effects look for people who, you know, anybody who hasn't seen this and they're into practical effects, it's there's some really great practical effects going on there. There's a bat at the end. You know, he Jerry turns into a bat and it's a little corny. um, But but uh, Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. He's a very Jerry Dandridge. He just sounds like an accountant or something, you know. A very unassuming name. It's a funny name. Jerry Dandridge. (laughs) Yeah, he turns into... But he doesn't turn into... It's like a bat creature. It's bat-ish. It's bigger than a bat. It's more prehistoric looking than a bat. It's large monster head. Yeah. Yeah, and it's great. It's original. And it's like some some creature builder had fun making those effects. And uh, and it's fun to watch. And, I, you know, I love... The practical stuff. I just, I love it. You know, somebody had to get real specific in terms of designing and making that and stuff went wrong in the making of it. So you had to solve those problems. And I, I just feel like that ends up in a kind of, you know, a magic on screen. Like if it looks too much like garbage, you don't use it. But most of the time you're sort of surprised with like, wow, that, that looks great. Like that's not, what I wanted it to look like, but I actually really like the way that came out mm-hmm. and it takes on a life of its own. Whereas with CGI, you've basically got somebody, some designer building the stuff and then they show it to the director and the director either thumbs up or thumbs down it. And there isn't any collaboration. There isn't any space for something to go wrong. Um, and no matter how Baroque or convoluted the design is it's also controlled 
Right. That I feel like it doesn't give you, it doesn't, there's no room for your imagination to enter into play. It just, it's like, look at this incredibly detailed thing I made for you to see. And I don't know, there's just nothing concrete for your mind to engage with. There's no gaps for your brain to fill in, you know? Yeah. And I, and I always feel like we're, we're still not at the point with CG that it's totally real, you know, they're getting better all the time, but it, it always seems to me like filmmakers overestimate the realness of it, you know, because you, you watch these eighties movies with the practical effects and you know, it's not real when you're watching it. And even a lot of times it, you know, and it doesn't seem realistic, but it's just, you know, there's a weight and a depth and all of that to, to what's there, that it was an actual physical thing, you know, and they have to do different things to hide aspects of it. So they're not, you know, and they, they hide things with lighting, whereas CG, it's just like, we're just going to put it out there. And just so much of it still, I mean, you even watch the, you know, the Marvel movies, um, you know, that cost, two or $300 million to make or whatever. And it still has this video game aspect to it. You know what I mean? Where it's still yeah. like, it doesn't look, you know, it's like, Oh, it looks good, but, yeah. but you're not fooled by it. Particularly in those sequences where it's like the Avengers versus the army of generic looking space monkeys. Yeah. You know, when it's, when it's just Tony Stark, and Robert Downey Jr., you know, in his CGI armor, his performance sells it. The armor looks cool, but you're watching his face and what's going on in the performance. When it's just a bunch of Avengers flying around and a bunch of space monkeys flying around, your brain disconnects because there's nothing, you know, there's no surprise to CGI because Mm -hmm. it's 100% controlled. You know, you never, there's never, you know, a bird taking a dump in the background of a CGI shot because mm-hmm. it's, you you didn't film the world, right? Uh, yeah. you, 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 it's all exists in a computer. So unless somebody designed that bird in there, which they don't because it's more expensive and takes more time, um, that doesn't exist. So there is no variable. There's no variable. And I think the best performers, when you see someone on camera and it really, the performance really gets you, I think they've done the work and they've done the preparation and the cameras are rolling and they know the camera's there, but they surprise themselves with the particular texture in that take of the emotion as it hits them. Mm-hmm. It's new to them. And they might, a great actor might be able to do it 50 takes in a row and cry every single time. But take by take is unique, even if they're doing the same delivery. The two takes are never precisely the same. And I think as humans, even if it's subconscious, we're very trained to recognize those tiny micro variations of all the little myriad muscles under our skin and around our eyes and mouth that convey subtext. Mm -hmm. And 
You know, CGI, you can do Warcraft or you can do a movie where it's a full CGI thing of actual human faces. And it's amazing how good that has gotten. Sure. It, it, I just don't, until you have a true AI that can emulate human experience, you're not going to get a computer generated image that is as moving as the actual human face. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying we'll never get there. I'm just saying we're not there yet. And yeah. I don't know. I mean, is it cheaper to have a computer? Do it? Just get an actor. Like that's part of the magic of movie making. Yeah. And that's you know, what makes it, I, that's what makes Jaws so great. The shark didn't work. So they, yeah. had to, they had to come up with other scenes and it's scarier. Yeah, absolutely. And a film and, you know, they've, you know, done other shark movies, but in a film today, they would show, you know, the shark would be doing backflips and stuff, you know, and it's, you know, instead of this very subtle. Right. You know, They'd make the, the shark, shark the size little. of Moby Dick. And, the, you know, it's just yeah. like, why don't you try and make a movie about a real, yeah, it could be a big shark, but a real shark, real shark is scary. If you're sure. in the water and a real shark is coming for you, that is scary. Try and capture that on film. That'd be terrifying. Yeah. I'm not dissing Jaws. I'm just saying no. that like some of the best stuff in Jaws, this, it's like Alien. The, the monster was so scary because you didn't see it very much. Mm-hmm. You saw it just enough to be terrified of like being afraid it was there, but not actually seeing it. Now you have the kind of the flip side of that is uh, John Carpenter's The Thing with yeah. the amazing effects in that. And they show you a ton, but then did you ever see the sort of, prequel remake that they made in like 2011 or 2012 or something like that. Did you ever what see was it, it called? It's called the thing. Um, but it's, it's, it takes place. It's like right before the events of the, so it's about the, um, it is also called the thing. Yeah. Um, so it is the thing. I'll tell you here what the, the year is. It's pretty good. I, I mean, it's obviously it's, haven't seen it. I saw the one with um, two thousand. Yeah, it's it's just called the thing, and it's two it's two thousand eleven. But it's about the Norwegian crew leading up to the the stuff with Kurt Russell. Um, but they, so it's kind of a remake and kind of a prequel. But they did everything practically, and then the. Um, the studio the think the studio didn't think it would work for modern is audiences, it, so uh, they're like, "You gotta, you gotta do CGI stuff." Uh, and it's like, is it the same aesthetic with all the like crazy little flailing tentacles? And yeah, they're very, not even tentacles; they're like cilia or something. They're like thousands of tiny little writhing, you know? Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's it, 2011. I mean, it's worth watching. It, it's not bad, um, but it's just. All of it you watch and and you're just like, I mean, it's just like Star Wars when, you know, you watch the special editions and it's like, okay, it's really easy to tell what the CGI spaceships are and what the model spaceships are and the model spaceships look better, you know? Yeah. So they look like somebody actually built them. Yeah. They look like they exist. And, you know, you can even tell sometimes that they're models. But like you said, they look like they exist. Right. Well, I don't think I'm watching a documentary. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, I've got a I've got a plastic version of it at home that I fly around and pretend is the real thing. It's it's pretend. It's a movie. Yeah. It's fun. 
I'm willing to suspend my disbelief. Give me something, you know, give me Puppet Yoda. I don't yeah. need CGI Yoda. Yeah. Puppet Yoda has a puppet artist manipulating. I know, I don't know that Frank Eyes did the puppet, but he certainly did the voice. Maybe he did the puppet. But Frank Oz is an excellent puppeteer. It might have been him doing the puppet. It would have been even better. I, I, but, but there's a, there's somebody alive mm-hmm. making the puppet alive, and there's somebody alive typing stuff into a computer to make the CGI. It's just you. It's a disconnect. You know, sure. the, the computer doesn't have any stake in it. The computer's not giving you a performance, right? So you're 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 putting a leap of remove between a human being performing something and what you see on the screen. I wonder if that's another thing where it's an, it's an age thing because we grew up with the practical effects, you know, kids that have, have always, you know, CG has always been in the movies that they've watched. Are they more, is it more convincing to them than it is to us? I don't know. I have no idea. Um, we're running out of time here. So why don't we, I mean, I, I'd say recommended, uh, great October Halloweeny movie. Check it out. Fun popcorn, especially if you're into eighties, you know, it's weird. It's a little all over the place, but I had a lot of fun watching it. I'm glad. I'm glad you did because, uh, you know, it's one of these, it's another of these where the first time I saw this was probably, it came out in 85. I probably, I watched it at a friend's house on HBO and probably 86, um, so I was 13 or something like that at the time. So, you know, this hit all the 13 year old buttons, uh, at the time, but I, sure. I, but I feel like it's, um, I mean, obviously it worked for you, but I, I think it's something, you know, you can watch as an adult. Again, I wonder like teenagers watching this today, would, would it work for them? Would they just think it was corny? I don't know, but, uh, I don't know, but for our age, like again, Ifs. If you're into the 80s nostalgia, like I love that I hadn't seen it. I was aware of Fright Night. I just never seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a lot of fun, you know, so if you're the kind of person that's like, yeah, I, I like all that stuff and I like what you guys have been talking about. I think you'll enjoy it. I oh, do think it's a little, yeah. it's a little it, slow in the first half, but, you know, stick with it. Anyone who, uh, you know, likes 80s movies, but. 80s horror and like you it was just one that they missed for whatever reason i can't imagine not liking this you know and this is in this is kind of that perfect perfect combination where it's kind of funny it's kind of scary it's um you know it's a little gross but it's never too gross um it's the, the acting all around is very good it's not a you know this was a made this columbia released this so this was a major studio yeah uh, it's not like some of these, you know, old movies and you go back and you're like, oh, that was kind of poorly made. You know, it's fun, yeah. but poorly made. This is a well-made, yeah, this is a well-made film. Um, this was actually this the number two, I was reading the number two highest grossing horror movie of the year. The the second uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was number one, but this one, sure. was, this one was number two. Sure. So. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think you feel you feel the fact that it's a first time director a little bit. Um, but, you know, it, it's it is a fun horror movie with genuinely engaging elements and they raise the stakes like you don't really expect the buddy to get 
turned and you don't really expect the girlfriend to get turned. Mm -hmm. And when those things happen, you're like, oh, snap. Like, I mean, I presume they're all going to make it out of this, but are they? <laughs> you know, yeah. that's that's pretty good. Absolutely. Um, great. So we have not discussed what we're going to do next time, but I think we should call it and then you and I can talk about it a little bit. Um Unless you have a strong lobby to make right now. Mm -mm. No, I don't. Well, let's let's call it for right now. We both recommend you go out, if you haven't already, watch Fright Night, and we will. Um, uh, if, if you have Prime, you can watch it for free on Prime. So, yeah. And a really great print. I mean, it's, it, it was remastered at some point, I'm sure. It looks really good. Yeah, yeah. That's a little perk for you there. Uh, won't cost you anything extra if you're already an Amazon subscriber. Um, and otherwise, um, be well, stay safe, have fun, tune in next time, and we will talk to you next week.